I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Here is a really heartbreaking statistic. Jenny Wallace, who is the author of the soon-to-be-released Never Enough When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. She interviewed a lot of teenagers and parents of high-achieving kids and said that more than 70% said they feel valued when they're successful. And as a parent... And many in the second shift community are parents. We would all say that our kids are loved and they matter and we care for them. But are we squeezing the life out of them with our fear for their future, for their success, for their happiness? And we all know there is a mental health crisis that's happening right now where our kids are being overwhelmed with anxiety. And I can say from what I hear from parents parents are also feeling overwhelmed with anxiety. So there's this catch-22 that's happening and no one is really winning. This book and this interview really tries to get to the heart of the matter of where did this come from? How is it real or is it not real? What we can do about it and how to think about what it means to parent right now, especially for our audience, who are many working parents, they are high achievers, they want the best for their children, and they see their kids not thriving and wilting under pressure. And I hear it all the time, and it's like stress begets stress. So I like this interview so much because Jenny and I, in full disclaimer, Jenny is a friend, Jenny is a parent of a child who is a very close friend. So we're like mom friends. And We see it play out in our own children and their friends and in the culture we live in. And what I love so much about Jenny is that she's able to have a rational conversation about like, this is irrational, what's happening. So enjoy this episode. Jenny has a really amazing take on what we can do to fix the problem, if not culturally and systemically, in our own homes and in our own nervous systems. I think that we should start this with all the disclaimers. Okay. (laughs) Just to like get it out of the way up front. Disclaimer number one is that we're friends. (laughs) Disclaimer number, I love you. I think you are (laughs) the greatest. (laughs) Our children, your third son and my oldest son have been in school together since kindergarten. So I have had a upfront experience of you and your parenting, which I think is fantastic. So I'm so happy to be talking to you about this, but also we've talked about this topic, this book for years. And so to see it come out and to have you have brought this to life and this incredible topic is so important. Lastly, we are white, we are privileged, You and I grew up in privileged environments. We both went to high-achieving schools, colleges, et cetera. So all of that to say that like, that's the position we're coming from when we start this conversation. And let's just validate that that's our life experience. Exactly. Well said. 
Okay. Now, never enough when achievement culture becomes toxic and what we can do about it. I'm very excited for you to tell me what we can do about it because <laughs> it's now August, which is technically the summer. And I am inundated by emails about like kids sports and their health alerts and the school and what's going on and the internal stress and anxiety is back in a way that is so unhealthy. And it's so important to remember. And that's why I love that this book has come out now because it's like, we have to have a rational mindset. And you've written a book all about how disruptive, unhealthy, and just like toxic the entire world is right now. The fact that it's August, we have a month until school starts and I'm stressed out and I'm not a child in school. I tell this anecdote in the book about how when my oldest, William, was in middle school, I became convinced that time was running out for him to find his passion. All of his friends' parents seemed to have found their kid's passion. The the soccer star, the chess guy, the There was even a kid who was really into like archaeological digs and the parent booked him on a trip to, and my kids were just playing in the backyard. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? What latent talents and interests am I missing in my own kids as though it was my job to not only find them, but to then foster them. And so I tell the story of um, putting together my back to school calendar and my son at the time and still does. Uh, have an interest in architecture and design. So I called, you know, I live in New York City. So I called all these schools and museums to see if they offered classes for sixth graders. And I finally found one that bit. And when my sixth grader walked in the door, I said, honey, I am so excited. I found you an intro to architecture and design class that you could do after school two days a week. And he's like, mom, I love architecture. Please don't ruin it for me. So I have been caught in this achievement trap myself. You know, as you said in the intro, I grew up as a high achieving person. I really enjoy achievement. This is not an anti-achievement book or an anti-success book. I believe in joyful, healthy achievement. But when I was growing up and when you were growing up, achievement mattered, but it was not so central to our childhoods. Our worth did not rise and fall on our achievements like it does with so many kids today that I interviewed for this book. So something has changed and the culture that we're talking about is very different than the culture that we grew up in. It's so bad. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, obviously the second shift is a platform for women's empowerment and for women to have jobs and be supported along their career journey. And 80% of the women who are in our community are mothers or parents, and they are average age 35 to 45 year olds. So these are women who they're the ones perpetuating this toxic cycle in a lot of ways. And I also don't think it's their fault. It's like a swirl that's happening around you. And for us as achieving parents, we were taught as kids, like you can go be anything you want to be, right? So you're going to go and you're going to get the greatest education and you're going to have these jobs and you're going to achieve. And then you're going to be these amazing parents. And so we are either caught in a place where we have these careers and then we feel guilt 
that we're not involved with our kids in the right way or this other parents doing this thing. And my kid's not an architect at 10, but I have to go to work and I can't go to the after school and somehow they're going to fail. Or we leave our careers and then these women with this high achieving temperament decide to professionally parent their children and make that their career, which then puts so much pressure, emphasis on these kids. And so it's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. So clearly we were raised wrong. So thanks parents, because whatever messages we, we were getting, I don't know where, where it got lost. I just think it's like a hypocrisy in a lot of ways. There isn't a win. So to address what you just talked about, which was really something in my head that I was struggling with for years before I wrote this book, which is why was my childhood so different than my kids' childhoods? And so I interviewed historians, economists, anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, researchers in a variety of fields. And there are a few reasons why our kids' childhoods are so intense, and it's not the fault of parents. And I oh, wrote good. It. Okay. Thanks yes. for letting. Thank you. I appreciate that. It is that. not that. So this is a book that says we have been set up and here's, here's how I want to explain it. Back in the seventies, when we were growing up, life was generally more affordable. Real estate was more affordable. Healthcare was more affordable. Food was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable. There was a belief in a parent that a child could take a kind of zigzaggy life, have some setbacks, but still wind up okay. Because for generations, every generation seemed to be doing better or at least as well as the last. Over the last several decades, we have seen in this country an ushering of extreme economic inequality, the crush of the middle class, globalization, hyper-competition. The job of a parent has always been to protect our kids, but really to to launch them into a successful adulthood, right? But now we don't even know what the majority of jobs are going to be. What are we preparing our kids for? And so what really resonates with me is that it's not so much that we parents are doing it wrong. It's the macroeconomic climate that we are raising our kids in. We are absorbing these messages of extreme inequality, of scarcity, even if it's imagined scarcity, of hyper-competition. And we are becoming, in the words of economists, social conduits. So we are passing those anxiety and fears onto our kids in the hope of preparing them for this uncertain future. We think we're doing them a favor, but really we what we're, we're doing is them. putting exactly. that scarcity mindset, that fear onto them. So then yeah. from an early age, they're freaking out. I also think that, you know, if you add in the social media factor where so much content, like we were kids, if you didn't, we weren't reading the newspaper, which we weren't, or watching the local news, which we weren't, we wouldn't have had any idea what was happening in the world. Our kids are like so plugged into a constant stream of content that's like, here's how to write a college admission essay. Here's, you know, there's a 4% acceptance rate at this school and they are so much more informed than we were. So that information and then our like internal nervous system as parents, they sense it, they see it, they feel it. So I think of two stories as you're telling me this. Last summer, my daughter, who was 15 at the time, worked at a frozen yogurt shop all summer and saved all of her money. 
And I said, what are you saving for? She's 15. She said, for food when I graduate college. And I said, why are you saving for food? She said, well, I've been hearing about how expensive groceries are and I want to be prepared. I mean, this was oh God, not- that's heartbreaking. It's crazy, right? And then another child I interviewed, an eighth grader at the time, the mother was telling me the story. In eighth grade, the mother was tucking him in and he said, mom, where would I live if I want to be an architect? And she said, honey, you could live anywhere. And he said, well, I zillowed the price of our house. I know how much an average architect makes. I would not be able to raise my kids the way you are raising me on the average architect's salary. So our kids, whether or not they are voicing it, they are absorbing these macroeconomic forces and it is playing out in their lives at a conscious or a subconscious level. So this is a very different climate than we grew up in. Yeah. And you have a quote. I mean, I have so many quotes from your book that I want to get into, but one of it's, it's that it isn't our job as parents to push or drag our kids to excellence. It's to correct the lies that our society tells them that they only matter if they're performing, if they're achieving, our job is to let them know that they are enough right now in this moment. So is that the answer? Is that where we need to put the attention and take it away to like learn how as parents to regulate our, our own nervous systems and to drown out the information, but also to teach them that, that it's all going to be okay. I don't know. I, what's the answer? You just hit on the two answers of the book. That was so extraordinary. So yes, the two answers of the book are, as parents, we need to buffer against the constant messages our kids are getting that they're not enough. They're not rich enough. They're not smart enough. They're not thin enough. They're not popular enough. And at home, we need to counter those messages with the idea that you matter no matter what. And I have a few examples I could give you of how parents can do that. But the second point that you hit on very importantly, which to me is just as big a point of the book, the number one intervention for any child in distress is to make sure the primary caregiver, most often the mother, that her support system, her well-being is intact because a child's resilience rests fundamentally on the caregiver's resilience. And a caregiver's resilience rests fundamentally on the depth and support of their relationships. So you hit on the exact two solutions. Number one, to drown out the messages that they only matter when. And two, to prioritize our own self-care, not in the way the multi-billion dollar self-care industry tells us with bubble baths and manicures and going for walks. And those are all great things and they're stress reducers and that's great, but that's not going to give you the resilience that close relationships give you. People who can see you for who you are and accept you and love you and care for you, just like you need to be for your own children as the first responders to their struggles. Friendships where you can tell your fears. And what is going on in your life? You know, I've had a mom group since my kids were born. These kids are now 12. We've basically, I mean, you know, Aliza Pressman, it's her group. She tried to kick us out for years because she's like, at this point, your kids are older than my expertise. But we're like, no, 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 no. Because we have this safe space where we come in and we're like, I'm so worried about this thing. And you can hear from other people the commonality of fear. And it's also like a good practice to 
A, be vulnerable, B, to have that like consistency of experience where you know it's coming, you know you have this, you don't have to reach out, it's not an emergency, it's there. And this group is out of work. They're not all people who you're friends with. And sometimes it's just like, oh, this is not an experience I'm having alone. And at this point, these women know my kid. They're not, they don't know, even if you don't know them personally or them personally, you know who they are, who we are as a family. It's so important to have those relationships as women. It's so important. And what you are describing is literally what the research finds. So there have been studies done virtually and also in in in-person groups, small groups of women, like you're describing with your seedlings group where one hour of intentional time a week to be seen and heard and validated and understood. You don't need answers, right? You're not looking to problem solve every, every situation, but to feel seen and heard and valued and cared for and to feel like you matter for who you are. That is something. So the, the parents I met in these communities and I traveled all over the country, it wasn't that they didn't have friends. It's that they didn't devote intentional time to their relationships so that those relationships could be a source of support when they needed them. They were so wrapped up in working full time, which many women, majority of women do and have to do. But then also this intensive parenting that we are put on every weekend, driving them to travel games and all of that. They lost the time, the intentional time to spend with friends. And so what I hope if there's one thing we get out of this podcast today, it's that parents understand that the number one thing you could do for your child is to invest in your relationships outside the home. That's how you regulate yourself. That's how you can be a first responder to all of our kids' needs. I want to go back a little bit because from the beginning, in the beginning of the book, you talk about a study that was done in Yale. And the reason why like sort of red flags went off. And for those who don't know, Jenny writes about parenting for many different outlets and isn't really an expert in this field. And you've, you're always highlighting things that come up that are like, this isn't cool. We need to fix this. Here's something that we can work towards. And you cite a study that happened in like the, in the nineties, I think, right. That was comparing kids susceptibility to pressure, stress, drugs, and alcohol, and had very surprising results. Yes. So Sonia Luthar, who was, until recently she passed away, one of the world's leading researchers on resilience, she was studying kids in the inner city, and she was looking for a control group to compare her findings. And so she went to a a relatively affluent community in Connecticut near Yale so that she could compare with these kids who have all these resources, how they were faring in mental health and substance abuse issues to these kids with very scarce resources and facing violence and discrimination. And what she found in the 90s, and it has since been replicated by her and other researchers, is that there are socioeconomic risks at both ends of the economic spectrum. Kids living in poverty and kids who go to what researchers call high achieving schools. Those are public and private schools around the country that are well-resourced, that have advanced placement classes, The kids go off to four-year colleges. Those kids are now officially an at-risk group, according to two very reputable national policy reports. 
And so this is not to compare because when I first read this study, I called Sonia Luther and I said, these kids in poverty face a lot more at risk factors. And she said, she kind of snapped at me and she said, no one is putting pain on a scale. A child in pain is a child in pain. Neither chooses their circumstances. And so she put me in my place. And I certainly do not compare in the book the pressures and the discrimination and the violence and the poverty that kids in lower economic communities face. But just to highlight that the excessive pressure to achieve is making our kids an at-risk group. And what I mean by at-risk, these kids in these schools are two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety, depression, substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. I have chills right now when you're saying that because we have kids that are we unintentionally destroying them by our best intentions? Right. So, yeah. So I I asked the same question to Tim Kasser, who is one of the world's leading experts on well-being and how what we value, our values, how it impacts that. And I said to him, you know, I live in New York City. I'm sending my kids to one of these high achieving schools. What can I do at home to buffer against it? And, you know, aside from moving out of these communities. And he said, I don't buy the premise of your question. If you knew there was lead in the water or asbestos in the air, you would pull your kid out. You're here. You know that this is an at-risk environment and you are keeping your kid in it. And I got all red in the face. Thank God I was just on the phone with him and we weren't Zooming. And I just was like silent. And then he, you know, filled in the silence and he says, but if you are going to stay, then you need to be very intentional about what you focus on in your home to balance those pressures. So home, and this is what the researchers, this is like, they're too big. Well, there are lots of takeaways in the book, but this was a big one. I asked Tim Kasser and I asked Sonia Luthar, the leading researcher on resilience. When I found this out, what can I do tonight? What can I do? I have this information now. I know my kids are part of an at-risk group. What can I do in my home? And they both said, minimize criticism, prioritize affection. So our kids are getting these pressures on social media from their peers, from their peers' parents, from the environment. Our home needs to be a haven from those pressures. It does not mean that we don't have standards. It does not mean that we don't help them scaffold and you know help them develop healthy work habits and doesn't mean we don't have standards, but the home needs to be a respite from the pressures and a place where your child knows they matter no matter what, no matter what they do, how they act, no matter what their worth is never in question. I think that's so important. I, I remember going back to my seedlings group. There was a time where you know we talk about grades and achievement and things like that. And I'm always like, I mean, you know, my parenting, I'm like, I don't care. Grades aren't important. And I was called out on it. I was called out on, well, but what you're saying and what you're doing are two different things because you're saying that, but then you're putting your kid into a culture where it matters to them and it matters to the school and it matters to their peer group. And so implicitly, 
you're saying it matters because you've placed them into that environment. So it's like reconciling and truing up what you say with what you do and changing the framework about what you're speaking into this kid. And I mean, let's, this could stress me out even more, but (laughs) you know, the idea that you're like, okay, I have to really think about what I'm putting them in, where I'm putting emphasis, how I'm expressing myself. Like if you're saying I'm proud of you, what am I proud of you for? And it doesn't matter if I'm proud of you. Are you proud of you? Yes, that's exactly right. I would say that there are, and I have seen this, there are things we can do in our homes and what we emphasize. So as part of what the book- are you, What are you doing differently? Yeah, so, yeah, I would love to know. I mean, I love your kids. You have, Jenny uh, has the most wonderful kids and her younger son, James, is like my hero. <laughs> I watch him every day, just like roll up to school. I'm not sure how he got there. He's eating a Starbucks, like croissant in shorts in the middle of winter. He's got chocolate all over. The dude looks like the dude. He is a little dude. He's very self-confident and self-assured. Okay, so I went for the book. Here's what I'm doing in my house. I went in search of the healthy strivers all around the country. I wanted to know, and I, I worked with a researcher at Baylor. I wanted to know what do these healthy, joyful kids have in common? What did their parents focus on at home? What were their behaviors like, their mindsets? What were their relationships like with their peers? And I found about 14 or 15 things that these healthy achievers had in common. And as I was looking for a framework to present it to parents, I came across a psychological construct called mattering. And mattering is an idea that's been around since the 1980s. It's been studied since then. It was first conceptualized by Morris Rosenberg, the researcher who brought us self-esteem, the idea of self-esteem. And what he found was that Kids who felt like they mattered to their parents, that they felt important, significant, loved and seen for who they were at their core, were more likely to enjoy a healthy level of self-esteem. They were more likely to bounce back from setbacks because they weren't an indictment of their worth. So what I found in my travels and what I now try to emphasize at home is to feed my kids mattering, make them feel valued by us by their friends, by their larger community, and then importantly, rely on them, depend on them to add meaningful value back to their family, to their friends, to their community. Because the two groups that I found were struggling the most were kids who felt like their mattering was contingent on their performance, that I only matter one. And the other group were people that they felt like they mattered to their parents, but they lacked social proof that they mattered because no one was asking anything of them. No one relied or depended on them. And we need to feel significant. Even kids at young ages need to feel significant. So at home, I have focused on, instead of solving for my kids' achievement or happiness, I now solve for their mattering. I make it clear every chance I get that they matter no matter what. And I'll give you a little example that you could do tonight in your house. So go into your wallet and grab a five, 10, $20 bill, whatever you have in there. Ask your child if they want the money, they will say yes. Then wrinkle it up, put it on the floor, squash it, make it dirty, dunk it in a glass of water, 
and pick up the same bill and say, do you still want it? And your child will undoubtedly say yes. And you say, like this $5 bill, your value doesn't change. Whether you've been knocked on the ground, rejected by a friend, or failed a test, your value is your value no matter what. And so I try as much as I can to send those signals every day. I love the idea of mattering because it's also mattering as an adult and a parent. We're here, sometimes parenting can be a very thankless thing to do. And people go to an office and they're like, do I matter here? You feel like you don't matter in the workplace, at home. And it's really hard also to keep a North Star when there is so much going on externally from you know, pressures of other parents, you know, the success of other kids, you know, feeling like your worth can't be tied up to what your child's achievement is either. And that's very hard for a lot of people. I mean, I'm speaking to women because I know that's the majority of my audience, but also if you're, you know, if it's a son and a dad, we're so tied up in the achievement of our kids. Yes. So it's interesting. I'd love to read you a question I asked. So I conducted with a researcher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, a first of its kind parenting survey to get to the root of these achievement pressures. And I think what you're describing is what researchers call child contingent self-esteem. And I would argue that parents, many parents feel as though society judges us for our parenting and the success of our kids. Not that we necessarily want to get our self-esteem from them, but society has now made it that our moral worth is tied to our kids' success. So just want to read this to you because I found this fascinating. I asked parents how much they agreed on a scale from one to four. I feel responsible for my children's achievement and success. 75% of parents agreed with that statement. And then I asked them how many of them felt like other people judged them for their kids' achievement and success. How many other parents in their community felt like that parent was responsible? 83% of parents felt like they were being judged as people based on their kids' success and achievement. I don't find that surprising at, at all. all because you're, it starts so young. You know, your kid didn't make the travel soccer team. And then all of a sudden you're like panicked. They're not going to be blah, 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 cut out. On, and you're like, oh, he only plays club soccer. Like right. that's some sort of indictment on you as a parent. And it exactly. same, goes to like, we have kids who are in, you have kids in high school. We have kids going almost into high school. And it's like, I don't know who cares more about what college they go to. And parents are so caught up in the narrative of who their kids are, what they've created. It's almost like we all live this externally validated life because of the way that social media has created the world and and the sort of micro networks that we have where it looks bad on you if your kid didn't get into this school. And then you're willing to invest any amount of money in like a ninth grade college counselor who's going to set your kid up for success. So maybe we are like hyper overachievers. We just hide it better. Yeah. Or, I mean, I think I'll tell you, Jenny, in my book, I talk to 
psychologists who say it's really important and to do the work as a parent to unpack your psychological attic. That is the messages that your parents sent you or that your neighborhood growing up sent you or that your high achieving schools sent you and to really unpack those and look at them and say, are these things true? Is going to, just to take the college example, is going to a highly selective or highly rejective, as I like to call it, college, is that what is most important? Is that truly, because I, just to give parents a little bit more context as to why we care so much about college brands right now. Again, I don't believe that it's simply the bumper sticker. I just don't. I think there's something more. And what I have found in my research and what other researchers have found is that because of this you know, deep inequity in our country, parents are relying on a college brand as a kind of safety vest to keep their kids afloat in an uncertain future. It's understandable, right? It's understandable. Unfortunately, that safety vest is feeling like a lead vest for too many of the kids we are trying to protect. So we're killing them with our fear and our like trying to, it's almost like, um, reminds me of like, remember like the Tiny Toons and there was like Elmira and she would like kill all the animals, squeezing them with her love. It's like, we're, we're kind of doing that. And, And I am reminded, I have a friend who has a kid in high school and he is not a student and they live in a high achieving world. And she's having such a hard time because she's like, he doesn't care and he's going to be great. And he's such a great kid and he's going to be such a huge success. But it's very hard for me when all the parents around me are talking about like the college counselors and where they're going to go to school and where they're applying. And she's like, my kid might just like go be a lifty or, you know, have a different life experience and not go to college And I fully believe that to be a good path for my kid and that he will have ups and downs and bumps and it's so scary, but he will be okay. Reconciling that with the emotion and fear and parental pressure externally is very hard. It's a lot of work. It's It's very hard. It's why you need your go-to people. It's why you need to surround yourself with one or two people who share your values, who understand how you're thinking so that you can call them when you say, why am I not hiring the tutor? Why am I not getting the college counselor? Oh, because this is not our family's values with our child. So my kid still matters. My kid still matters and he matters no matter what. Yeah, I love that. I love this. And in the book, you go through all of these different steps. There's an entire resource guide in the back of of like what you can do to bring this actionably into your home, what educators can do to bring this into schools. What has, I know you're just kicking off this tour, but what has the response been like from parents and from educators as you've highlighted these things? I mean, it's not something we don't know. It's just more looking in the mirror of, you know, taking stock of where things are and how we've contributed to it and what we can do differently. Schools and parents. Absolutely. And communities. So in 2019, when I sold this book, I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a hard sell. This is going to be a hard sell to tell parents that if you really want to raise healthy, successful achievers at home, you're going to need to hold back. But I've been on the road now talking about this and 
I have yet to have one person push back with this message because again, this is not, I am not anti-achievement. I am not anti-success. I am just saying, broaden your definition. I'm ambitious, but I'm also, I'm ambitious about my work personally, but I'm also ambitious about my friendships. I'm ambitious about the connection I want with my kids. I'm ambitious about my marriage and my hobbies. I am ambitious for more than just this narrow definition of success. Where we've gone wrong is just looking at this really narrow, narrow path to success, where if you were to ask adults in your life, how many people had this straight path to success? I certainly didn't. I think success is all about pivoting and recovering and zigs and zags. But as parents, we are, again, these macroeconomic forces are are stressing us out and we're trying to get the safest path to success. We've, We've decided that getting into that college, I mean, I'll tell you the honest truth, which is so sad, is that colleges are now accepting kids for sophomore year of college. So colleges will will send a letter to a senior in high school and say, if you enroll somewhere else freshman year, you can transfer here sophomore year. Why are they doing that? Because they are losing so many kids to burnout, to mental health struggles. This is not working. It is not working. It is not developmentally appropriate. The pressure we are putting on our kids, it is not appropriate for so many of them. You know, it just makes me think like when I started the second shift, I remember there, I had had numerous conversations with, with women who at that time I had very little kids and I was coming up against not wanting to do the career that I had basically been on a very narrow and high achieving goal to like, this is what I'm going to do. And that's it. And if I don't do that thing, I've somehow failed. And so that was one of the impetus, but I was having a lot of conversations with other women who were in a similar place, who had been so highly achieving, who had gone to the world's greatest school and the world's best business school, law school, gotten the job, been at the thing, and then burnt out. And so it's the same cycle playing itself out. It's just playing itself out earlier in our kids. They don't get as far down the road and they burn out in high school because the pressure is so much more intense. But in both cases, it's the signaling externally that this is what you have to do. This is the goal, it's goal, it's goal, it's goal. And then at some point you've reached that goal or you don't realize you don't want that goal. And then it's like, what am I now? And so the second shift was built to help people feel like they A, matter, and B, that like somebody's taking care of you and going to help you navigate this, keep going, you're going to be okay, we've got this. You know, I never thought about it in those terms, but it's that's kind of what we're doing. It's like when you want to give up, like don't give up, you can keep going, you matter, we care, we got you. That's awesome. Every woman and man should have that support system. You know, I think in our, just to talk a little bit more about that, it's not that we don't have those values inside of us. It's not that we don't want relationships. It's not, it's that we, again, because of the economic forces and the status that's constantly pulling at us, we are investing too much time into the narrow goals instead of 
the relationships. You know, it's funny, one, one researcher talks about narrow high achievement as a spike, right? We all talk about, oh, you have to find your kids spike, whatever that means, so that they stick out in a crowd for the college admissions office. But if you look at the shape of a spike, it's easy to topple over. What we need to do is to raise our kids in what David DeSteno, who's a researcher at Northeastern, calls a pyramid model, a base of strength. You can reach much higher if you have that base and you are very solid and resilient. So you can still reach the top, but it's about reaching it in a way that it's teaching our kids how to build a life that they don't need drugs, alcohol to escape from. And to build that life is to teach them how to build more of like a pyramid type life with relationships as the base. And that is what we should also be doing as grownups, as adults, building that same life and that same structure for ourselves so that we have a strong foundation, strong relationships, know that our intrinsic worth and value is not tied up in where our kids go to school or where we live or how they succeed, because then we feel the pride in ourselves. And I love just to wrap up one last thing. What I love that you said is you give the advice that it's not about the grade you got or the excellence or anything. And and this could be said grownups or kids. It's, are you proud of yourself and the effort you put into the thing that you're doing, the life you're building? Because if you're proud of yourself, then you matter to yourself. And ultimately, that's the person that you have to have the strongest relationship with. Yes, that's so well said, Jenny. So well said. Thanks, Jenny. I'm so lucky because I get to have you in my group of friends and in more and parents to be able to sit at the sideline of the basketball game that neither of us want to be at, you know, eating Twizzlers after work and watching her kids basketball team that's not little great. <laughs> they're not great but they're trying so hard and they're so proud of themselves they care so much they care they they really love it anyway and i'm so lucky to have you on the sidelines with me because oh, i feel the same you way know, you are a really like just a rational voice in a sea of crazy right now and i wish you all of the best and i know that this is going to be a huge success for you because this is such an important topic Everybody is into it when I talk about this. So thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for all your support. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women. 